but so glad that you're able to be here with us this morning. Uh, we are in the final week of our series called Table Talks. And it's the first series that we wanted to do as a church. So if you didn't know, uh, we are, this is, this is week eight for us as, as a new community here in Langley. And so we're on this adventure of discovering who we are, uh, not only in, in the city, but who we are as individuals and who we are as a community. Uh, and it's an incredible adventure that we're on. And one of the original aspects of our journey was centered around the dinner table. And so for the many new faces around here, I will reiterate the fact that this is my dinner table from my house. And my house currently has a folding table as the dinner table. And so we're getting to enjoy this. It never looks this nice. Uh, the ladies do a much better job of decorating the table than I would. But it is here for us to enjoy. And this is the table where we actually saw so many new relationships and new conversations begin. Uh, when we moved out here, just like it said in the video, we knew how to do one thing, and that was eat and gather around a table, and uh, this was the space where that happened. And so we've decided to, to tie our series with that, because in the Gospel of Luke, there are nine different instances where Jesus gathers around a dinner table. And Robert Karras makes a statement that it seems like in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is always going to a meal. He's either at a meal or he's coming from a meal. Jesus knew what it was that was important, and it seemed to be food was a high priority in Jesus' life. And so what we've done is we've walked through five different stories up to this point, and this is the final week, and we find ourselves on the road to Emmaus. So one of the most beautiful narratives in the Gospels. And so if you would turn with me, if you've got your Bibles, otherwise you can take a peek up on the screen. We're going to Luke chapter 24, and we're starting in verse 13. Luke 24, verse 13, and it says this. Says that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. This is post resurrection. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. I, I, the level of, of detail in this passage is fascinating, and, and it causes theologians and scholars to, to postulate about who was actually the two men, but the level of detail speaks so beautifully about what is actually taking place, because it's funny that maybe the most relevant statement in this entire passage that we're going to read is the simple fact that when we are sad, it causes us to come to a standstill, that it causes us to stop moving, and this is what happens to these two individuals. Then in verse 18, it continues, and it says, Then one of them named Cleopas answered Jesus, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucify him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had hoped he was the Messiah. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Even the disciples didn't believe the initial witness of the women. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He gives the most incredible breakdown of scriptures, most incredible sermon. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, Emmaus. And Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So Jesus went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he broke the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sights, and they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn? Other versions say our hearts were stirred, our hearts were on fire. And within us, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us to the scriptures. And we're going to end there at verse 32. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this moment and this space. Thank you for your scriptures and uh, all the life that we have to find within it. I pray that this morning our hearts are open and ready to receive you. To not leave this place the same, but to experience the life-giving power of, of you, Jesus. And so I, I pray that we are open and ready to receive and to respond to something fresh uh, in, in your scriptures and help us have a great time together. Thank you for this place, for all the uh, new faces that are here, for, for the opportunity to gather. We're so grateful for what you are building here in our midst. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so I'm going to open up with a question. Uh, have you ever caught yourself taking something for granted which has become incredibly familiar? Perhaps uh, it's the fact that you have a cell phone. The fact that you live in your parents' place. <laughs> Perhaps it's the fact that you have a car. Maybe it's the fact that you're able to actually run for 20 minutes without getting tired. I can no longer do that. And, and these, we have these things in our lives that have become incredibly familiar, and we get to this point in our stories where we almost take them for granted. I know for myself that when we moved from Calgary, uh, everyone has an idea of what Calgary is. They kind of tie it to the idea of like the Calgary Tower, the Calgary Stampede, the Calgary Flames, who are now doing really, really well this season. Uh, all, these, all these different things that they tie to Calgary. And if I'm being honest, I don't, I don't know the last time that I went to the Calgary Stampede, but yet it is something that's correlated with Calgary. And, and the same thing happens here in the Lower Mainland because we moved out here and we're like, wow, ocean on our doorstep. Awesome. And everyone here just kind of took it for granted. They're like, yeah, of course. No snow, awesome. And I was like, of course, a little bit of snow shows up and the city shuts down. Panic ensues. It is, it is dramatic. And we're like, we are just grateful that, like this morning, I had to just like wipe off my windshield while I had friends back in Calgary that were digging out their cars because of the snow that showed up overnight. So like the different things that we prioritize in different situations and we become familiar and we begin to take things for granted. Like for example, like this beard that you're enjoying this morning is not always been this way. It kind of came a little bit earlier in life than maybe for some of you, but uh, it was like, it was a progression over time because my mom did not particularly want me to have a beard growing up because she thought it kind of made me look like a terrorist. And I'm allowed to say this, okay? <laughs> I'm allowed to say this. 
And it, it kind of started with the chin beard is what it, it began with, like the soul patch and the chin beard. And I rocked that for a significant period of time. And I thought it was awesome. It wasn't. But I thought it was awesome. And then I graduated from there to just like just the goatee. And that was good. That was really good. And then from there, I eventually got to like the full beard, got the courage and, and did it. And uh, there was one moment I had the goatee, and you got to keep it trim, you got to keep it fresh. And so I was trimming it, and the trimming didn't go as I expected. And I took off a little bit more than I wanted to, and it turned into like half a Hitler mustache. And I had to make a decision. of like, I had to re revert back to the chin and patch beard. And let's just say that I didn't realize how good it was until it was gone. Because <laughs> once it was gone, I was like, oh, I can't believe I had that for a significant period of time. But that was my story. But it, it, and it's a silly example, but it, there's, there's truth in it that we become familiar with things over time, and we don't appreciate it for what it really is in our lives. And this was the case for the disciples, that Jesus has spent the last three years with them, and they have done incredible things together. They have spent a, an immense amount of time learning and listening from this incredible communicator, this incredible teacher, this man that they've come to call their Messiah, and they've spent three years with him, and then suddenly Friday comes, and the moment that they have been taught has been coming all along has arrived. And Jesus is taken from them. And that which they had grown incredibly familiar with was now taken, and they've, and they've gone to this place of great despair there's a, there's a lack of hope. There's confusion. There's questions about why and, and what were we doing all along. And this familiarity is confusing because it's no longer making sense to them. And it's interesting that familiarity often blinds us from how much we actually value things in our situation. Because of the familiarity that we carry, we don't appreciate it for what it actually is. And so Jesus, this, this story that we're walking into, the road to Emmaus, this is post-resurrection. And the idea of a man rising from the dead doesn't come without its critics or its skeptics. It's, 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 a, it's a critical issue in the history of humanity. And there's been many a conversation around it because this, this small group of individuals who called themselves followers of the way, followers of Jesus, they made the decision that they were going to do exactly as that, that phrase says and they were going to follow after him. And they were met with, met with intense, violent persecution early on in the infancy of the, of the beginnings of Christianity. And then there was moments in Christianity where they falsely represented who Jesus was and atrocities were committed in his name. And there was these situations that don't seem to look like Jesus, but yet we find ourselves here today talking about this man that rose from the dead 2,000 years ago still. And I find it fascinating, this story that Jesus, he, he, he rises from the dead. And if I was Jesus' post-resurrection marketing manager, I would not have done the things that he would have done or included the parts of the story that are included. Because there are so many narratives and so many arguments about why Jesus was the Messiah, why Jesus was the Son of God, and often they're tied with Old Testament prophecies, and, and the possibility of it happening is incredible. But perhaps the stories after affirm my belief even more so than the stories before. 
Because if I was Jesus' post-resurrection marketing manager, it would not make a ton of sense to include the fact that the first people to see Jesus were women. Because in that day and age, the witness of a woman was not even accepted in the court of law. So if I was the, the disciples trying to make people believe that Jesus was actually risen from the dead, it doesn't make sense that I would go directly to women and say that you should be the one to tell people that Jesus is alive. It doesn't make sense. That one of the first places that you go to is not known in, in modern day, we think we have an idea of where Emmaus is, but we really don't know. Archaeological findings aren't able to actually pinpoint the exact location. And so Jesus is on this road to this place that is insignificant, that it is not known, it is not mentioned in the rest of the biblical text. And yet Jesus goes there. It would make sense that Jesus would actually want to have perhaps a Pharisee or someone of high standing to come to the tomb and recognize that it was empty. For him to go to Jerusalem right away because that's where everybody would recognize him. That, and they would know right away that he was alive, that he was risen. And then he goes and he meets two individuals that we've never met in the text before. We've met, we meet the unknown and the unnamed. And we, and we meet them on this road to Emmaus. And it doesn't make sense either because the first people that you want to introduce yourself to, that you want to reveal yourself to, you would hope would carry some kind of standing, wouldn't you? If you were trying to fabricate a story of resurrection, you want to get all your ducks in a row. So none of it seems to make complete sense. But yet, perhaps the thing that we need to read in this story is, is not the fact that he, he simply went to Emmaus or he simply met these two individuals or that the women were the ones to, to see him out the very first time, but that Jesus is not concerned with checking our boxes of political correctness or social acceptance or interpersonal relations, but Jesus is, is specifically concerned about specifically pursuing you. He is not in the business of just making himself look good. But these were two individuals that are on this road to Emmaus, and we find them in deep distress. That, that they're having a tough time. And Jesus makes the decision to come to them. And so this unmarked road to a town that we've never heard of and Jesus only has 40 days left to let everybody know that he's risen from the dead. And he goes to them. And it was such an insignificant place. It's, it's similar to like as if you're driving on the one and you pass through hope, but you pass through hope. It, it doesn't really have any significance, it seems. And he chooses to appear before these two individuals whose names we don't know beforehand, but we do meet one of them, and one of them's name is Cleopas, and the other is unnamed. So we've upgraded from two unnamed individuals to one unknown and one unnamed. Even better. And some scholars, they query that it could be Luke as the other individual because of the level of detail in the story, or other scholars think that it could just be uh, Cleopas and Mrs. Cleo, like, it's just a husband and wife that they're, they're on this journey together. And, and I want to paint this picture really carefully. And I, wanna, I want you to understand the background around it. Because I think that it, 
tells us something really beautiful about who Jesus is. That in a, in a modern day fascination with fame, Jesus cared very little about that. He was not pursuing the normal systems of fame and of, of fabrication as people were soon going to accuse him of. What if, instead of, like, in our modern-day understanding, we, we, we make this statement, but what if Jesus was well ahead of his time and he was more concerned about the journey and less about the destination? That he was more concerned about the journey that these men were on than rather than the destination of Emmaus. And the first steps out of the tomb, this is significant, the very first steps that he takes out of the tomb lead him to this insignificant, unnamed, irrelevant scenario. And perhaps that tells us more about what he wants us to see in the resurrection than the resurrection itself, perhaps. That sometimes we become so consumed with the idea of the resurrection being about eternity and he's so, so much more concerned with the here and the now. That he walks, on, he walks with us on this road to these destinations. I kind of love that Emmaus isn't discovered in, in, our, in our modern day society that we don't really know where it is because then we each get our own Emmaus. We each have this place that we're going to that maybe doesn't seem all that significant or consequential, but we're going there anyways, and we wonder, is Jesus really going to go with us? And that we feel, sometimes we feel strong, sometimes we feel weak, sometimes we feel emotional, sometimes we feel beaten down. But yet, on every step of the way, I think this story is leading us to this place to see that Jesus is with us at every step. That he's unconcerned with the destination of where you think you're going, but he wants to be with you on the journey. Seven miles is how long they travel. That's a significant period of time. And so much takes place within these seven miles. And it's so beautiful because they get an opportunity to present the simple fact that they had no faith. They had no faith. They did not believe, they did not say the right words, they did not sing the right hymn, they did not have the exact thing to do that was perfectly situated for Jesus to come in that moment, and yet Jesus still pursued them. And if that is the very first thing that he does when he rises from the dead, there's something to it. That perhaps, I, I make the mistake of sometimes believing that in order for me to get into the presence of God, I have to do the right things. I have to get my life right. I have to say the right, the right phrases and get myself in the right situations. But in this situation, perhaps getting in the presence of God is just being simply honest about my doubt, about my struggle, about my insecurity, about my failings and bringing that to Jesus and saying, Jesus, take it. 
and then discovering that he's been with us at every step of the way. And they continue on this journey. And, and, and they're going the wrong way, and yet Jesus still goes with them. I love that. Because Jesus told them beforehand that Jerusalem was where the gift was going to be given, the Holy Spirit was going to be given, but yet Jesus goes in the wrong way because he's more concerned about people and about the process than the destination. So what if following Jesus was more about the journey and less about the de destination? What if salvation was a starting block and not a f finish line? How would that change the way we would live our lives? How would that change the way we treated people, responded in heartbreak, pursued our passions? And I love how it says that Jesus drew near to them. And their mourning loss, there's a lack of hope in this situation. And then Jesus with his, as only Jesus can, it seems like, he's got this like sense of humor where he walks up and he's like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And he's like, and they're like, well, haven't you been to Jerusalem? Hasn't, hasn't everyone heard about what's been happening? He's like, no, tell me. Humor me. <laughs> and they, they still don't recognize that it's Jesus. And they kind of give a eulogy for a dead man that was now alive right in front of them. And then there's this, there's this moment where, where Jesus, he rebukes them. And, and it might seem harsh because they don't recognize that Jesus was there. But, but sometimes I think that we need to be rebuked in our unbelief because we can't see what is right in front of us. It wasn't, it wasn't malicious. It wasn't violent in that sense. But it was, it was meant to teach. It was meant to instruct. It was meant to draw him closer, draw them closer to Jesus. And he opens up the text and he gives this incredible breakdown. And we don't know exactly specifically what he had to say, but he was trying to reveal to those two men that there was something more that had taken place. That there's this narrative in the history of Israel where they go from, from despair to hope. Where they go from, from slavery to, to, to freedom. Where they go from exile to the return. And so perhaps in the story of the Messiah, they would come from death to resurrection, and Jesus breaks it down so beautifully. And this is where it really gets really interesting for me, because they arrive at Emmaus. They get to Emmaus, and, and Jesus kind of feigns as if he's going to continue, and they invite him to, to come and take a meal with him. And he breaks the bread, and he reveals himself. But, but let's, let's, let's pause for a second. Let's take a look. How did they get to Emmaus? They walked. They continued on their journey. But in verse 17, it said very specifically that they stopped because of their sadness. There's no indicator that they started walking again, only that Jesus started talking. There's no, there's no point at which it seems like they continued on their journey. But they were so deep in their despair. In Psalm 23, it's one of the most popular, popularized verses, passages today. And it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you 
are with me. And in many ways, this story, this scenario, is Jesus living out this Old Testament passage. Because in the sha- death is but a shadow to Jesus in this moment. And the shadow of death, more literally translated, is actually saying deep distress. And these, these men, or this, this, these two individuals, they're walking on this road and they're in deep distress. And then they stop because of their sadness. And this is what you and I do. Sometimes we get so overwhelmed by grief or by struggle or by pain in our stories that we don't know what to do, and so we just stop. And we don't continue anymore. And we get consumed by our sadness. And yet Jesus comes alongside us. He draws near to us. And then somehow, because of his presence, we continue our journey. We continue to walk. We continue to discover. We continue to process. Because you notice, when they got to the end of the road, they just couldn't let go. They thought it was unnatural. Nobody caught it. That's good. They got to, the, they got to Emmaus. They got to the inn. And yet there seems to be an element of joy that they invite him in. That they're they're okay to to step into something that might be a little bit uncomfortable. And they've progressed from this place of deep sadness to this place of invitation. And the only thing that's different in that space of time is the fact that Jesus was present with them, was teaching them, and was walking with them. And maybe the thing that this passage needs to teach us more than anything is just to keep walking. That even when it doesn't make sense, even when we carry so much doubt and pain and struggle in our everyday lives, that Jesus is inviting us to just keep walking. And even if I feel absent, even if I feel like I'm far from you, I promise you, I'm with you uh, every step of the way. Matthew 28, 20 says, I am with you always. And that is his promise to you and to me, that even when he feels absent, you are not abandoned. Perhaps you don't recognize him. Perhaps you don't see him. Perhaps you don't know where he could be currently on your journey of life. But the promise that he gives to us is, I am with you always. And he draws near to us. He listens to us. And then he leads us into new beginnings. And I find it fascinating that it, it says at one point that they were kept from recognizing Jesus. And the question I have when I hear that is, is why? Why hide your identity? And there's, there's a lot of different theories as to why. But I think the text kind of indicates the answer to that. I think one of the reasons might very simply be that Jesus desires to hear the very honest truth of their hearts. If Jesus just says, voila, I'm here right in front of them, he doesn't get to hear the struggle and the honest confusion, the honest doubt that, he's experience, that they were experiencing in that moment. Jesus desires real conversation with you. He doesn't want you to cherry coat, sugarcoat your prayers. <laughs> I don't know what a cherry coat is. Sounds fancy. He wants you to be real. He wants you to be honest. 
He wants the deep distress of your heart to be brought before him and to be taken directly to him. I think that's one reason, and I think another reason is, is very simply that he's moving from a place where people were believing him by seeing, but now he was going to want people to believe without sight. He said, blessed are those who, who believe without seeing, who believe by faith and not by sight. Because they get to Emmaus, they have a meal, Jesus reveals they recognize, and then he vanishes. It's like this triple miracle within, like, short order. And then what they say next reveals where the real miracle was taking place. Because they say that, wasn't your heart burning as you listened to him on the road? As you listened. They did not say, wasn't your heart burning as you saw him? They didn't say, wasn't your heart burning as as you saw him break the bread, as you touched his hands, as as he looked at you? They didn't say any of those things. They said, wasn't your heart burning as they heard him speak, as he broke down the scriptures, as they were on the road? The miracle didn't take place in Emmaus. The miracle took place on the road. And it's this beautiful story that Jesus just says, let me walk with you on the journey of life. Let me be on the road with you. That I am with you always. That even when I feel absent and far from you, I'm close to the brokenhearted and to the hurting, to the hopeless and the abandoned, that I am with you. I think we need our hearts to be stirred to burn every once in a while. That we have these moments in our life that we, we don't see Jesus in it. We don't know where he could be. And perhaps this morning is, in many ways, an Emmaus for you. Because they get to the end of the road and, and Jesus kind of feigns moving on and what do they do next? They, they invite him in. Because Jesus is a gentleman. He pursues you and I, but he doesn't force himself upon us. He just waits upon an invitation. And this is, this is my hope for you this morning. And I believe this so wholeheart, wholeheartedly. He's walking with you in the here and now. Wherever you are. Whatever you believe wherever you find yourself on your journey of faith, he is walking with you. He is present in your story. He is hearing your doubts, your struggles, your hurts, your confusion, and he still draws near. And perhaps today is an Emmaus for you where you have an opportunity to actually invite him to your table. And say, just perhaps, I can break bread with you. I can get to know you better. We can do life together. Would you pray with me?
There's, there's power in this invitation that we give. That Jesus, he lived the life that we couldn't live and he died the death that we deserved, but he rose again so that we could have a life that we never thought possible. A love that we never deserved. And so that he could draw near to us. So that he could reinstate the relationship between us and God. So I'm going to pray. And if you're here this, this morning and you've never made a decision to invite Jesus into your life, perhaps this is your moment. And I don't want to make this uh, a dramatic public declaration in, 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 this, in this moment for you. This is between you and God. That he's walking along the journey of life with you and perhaps today is a moment for you to invite him to your table. So would you pray that prayer with me if that is you this morning? So Jesus, we're so grateful for this moment, for this place and this space and for the opportunity to, to get to know you and to see what your word has to say about us in the here and now. That as we discover you, we discover more about ourselves, that it's okay for us to come before you with all that we have. That you don't push us away, but you draw us closer. That you draw near to us. Jesus, we're unable to save ourselves. As hard as we try and as much as we have good intentions, we consistently fall short. But thank you that your grace is more than enough for all that we need. And that as you walk with us, you still remain near. And all you're waiting for is that invitation. So Jesus, we invite you to our table. For the first time or for the hundredth time, we invite you to our table and we say, come and meet us here. We want to know you more. Would you transform us? Would you change us? Would you challenge us? Would you convict us? Would you lead us to a place of new beginnings so that we can grow to look more like you? So grateful for all that you do without us even knowing it. Let us not grow familiar with your love or with your, with your face or with your presence in our midst. Let it be something that just humbles us and transforms us and, and leads us to this place of awe and wonder every single time. We're so grateful for you. And for every person that's here this morning, Jesus, I just pray that hearts that are searching, that are questioning, that they are comforted just with the simple knowledge that you are near them. and that you desire to know them. Thank you for the journey that we're invited upon and for the journey that you walk with us on. We're so grateful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.